Lord, you've been so good to us, and I pray for each one of us that as we engage with your word this morning, that we would return thanks and also love one another because you first loved us. And as the preacher this morning, I ask that you would help me. Come, Holy Spirit. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. What's your favorite story? Your favorite um, novel, uh, movie, um, some kind of story, even a story from something that actually happened in real life or even in your own life. What's your favorite story? Just think about that for a second. And what about it makes it your favorite? I'd like to suggest that all the best stories that have ever been told are those that have some element of self-sacrifice on the part of the protagonist or a key character in the story. With that idea in mind, I went into our stack of DVDs in our TV stand and started pulling them out and going, okay, what's the element of self-sacrifice in this one? Does this fit my category? And I went through each one, looking and starting to see. And all the ones that I considered the best actually had that. Now, categories, say like romance stories, tend to have self-sacrifice in the sense of the person gets to the place of loving the beloved for their sake only, not for what they can get in return. And that's when we, our hearts melt and we go, ah, now that's true love. Or, you know, the action movies, even the Marvel crazy stuff with their ridiculous impossible action scenes are about using great power to protect or help or serve someone else. And, um, and the justice ones, the ones that are, the stories about like a murder mystery, let's say, they're not as great. They, they temporarily satisfy us because it's sort of a whodunit and some crime has been committed and we long for justice. We want the bad guy to be found out. We want them to go to jail or whatever. But all that does is it kind of evens the pain. It doesn't restore what's been lost or the person that died. It brings it back to where we were before, sort of. And we long for more than that. We're longing for, for love, for, for mercy on top of justice. We're, we're longing for goodness. And when self-sacrifice comes in, there's an altruistic um, sense of fulfillment. I love those World War II type movies like Band of Brothers where the guy sacrificed for the fallen soldier or whatever. I've not seen the movie from 2014 Fury, but this weekend somebody showed me a clip, just a YouTube clip, of a key scene, and it's a World War II movie, and there's some guys in a tank, and there's a whole bunch of, uh, the good guys are all moving supplies in, and they're vulnerable because of this, and these guys in the tank have to hold some road from the SS soldiers that are coming, and the tank breaks, and there's only like a half dozen or eight of them. And, um, and they should, in self-interest, run into the woods and hide, because they're gonna be wiped out by 300 guys coming, but the whole movie is about them deciding to make a stand. They know they're gonna die but they're gonna delay the enemy just enough so that the rest of the army or whatever it is can get through and get to safety. And as they come to the conclusion that we have to do this and we are going to die, they actually start to feel truly alive. They're kind of, they're like, okay. They're, they're, the, the, the scene crackles with life because they're like, this is my moment. This is what I'm here for. I'm gonna spend my life to save others. And they've never felt more fully alive. I'm, I'm eager to see the whole movie, but it was a fascinating little scene. And, you know, it reflects what Jesus said. There's no greater love than this than someone lay down his life for a friend. Because true love sacrifices. 
I heard a story two weeks ago of a woman who was in a professional career, just starting out in a new job in New York City, in a high stress kind of situation, and one of the first big things she did was a huge mistake. It was the kind where you get fired from the new job. But her boss stepped in and took the blame for it. Um, he had been there longer, he had more credibility with the company, and he thought he could take the hit without being fired, and so he did it. He said, that was my fault, that was my call. And, and this, it blew all of her categories, because she said, in this kind of dog-eat-dog situation, climbing the corporate ladder, I've seen managers take credit for something someone else did to advance themselves. I've never seen someone take credit for a failure and hurt their own reputation. I don't understand you. I'm confused. And he said, well, I'm gonna, I'll explain it to you, but only because you've asked me. And he said, the truth is I'm a Christian, and God has taken the hit for me so that I can be here, and I'm just, I'm just reflecting that back to you. I think this is what God has in store for us. And he shared the gospel with her, and the reason I heard the story is because she actually became a Christian as a result of this kind of self-sacrificial love. And I wonder personally, have you ever experienced something like it? Where somebody has sacrificed something about themselves to help you or benefit you? And the higher question then is, have you ever done that for someone else? And what did that look like? What happened? How did you feel when you did it? Was it fulfilling? Now, we're in this um, sermon series on the, the patriarchs, and I'll call it the patriarchs plus Joseph, because he's technically not a patriarch, but we're getting close to the end of Genesis, and we didn't exhaust Genesis. I just took some key moments to lay out like a nine or 10 week sermon series. We could have been in Genesis a lot longer, so we've skipped quite a, quite a way ahead. One of the scholars I read, Bruce Watke, a Hebrew scholar, Old Testament guy, made this point. He said, Judah, the, the son, one of the sons of Jacob, Judah, is the first person in the Bible to willingly offer to sacrifice himself. Very interesting, actually. We're, you know, we're 44 chapters into Genesis, and now self-sacrifice has entered in, and he's willing to do this. The Joseph story we've been looking at is coming to a climax right here. Between chapters 44 and 45, the, the, the secret is out, that Joseph is actually the brother. He's now in charge of Egypt. And it's a moment of self-sacrifice on Judah's part that causes him to break. He can't take it anymore, and he spills his beans, and he reveals himself to them. Of course, you know, by the time in a story when you get to that climactic moment and the truth comes out, the story's over. There's only one chapter left. We're done. Like, the tension is gone once that comes out. And this is a beautifully told story. But um, let, me, let me remind you key moments in it. Joseph was favored by his father, given a coat, special favor. And keep in mind, Jacob had a wife that he loved, Rachel, and also was tricked into marrying her sister, Leah, who was not as attractive. And he only had two sons from Rachel. And it was Joseph, and then it was a younger one, Benjamin. Remember, there are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 sons of Jacob. He ends up having a lot of sons, I think it's six, from Leah, her sister. And then they each give him one of their maidservants because they, they get into like a sibling rivalry thing, and they start ha he starts having like children from four different women. I mean, it's a, it's a mess in terms of family systems. But it does, God uses it to bring out the 12 tribes of Israel. But there are only two from Rachel, the truly loved wife of his father. And one is Joseph, who he thinks is dead, and the other is the younger Benjamin. And so, again, favoritism, Jacob is holding on to Benjamin very closely. And when this famine hits, 
this famine that's going to be in the land for a long time, and Joseph now has been put in charge of Egypt to care for all of the grain that's going to come in, so when the famine hits, there's food. When it gets so bad that even the people in Canaan have to come down to Egypt to buy food, that's where they connect up. Joseph recognizes his brothers being sent down, but they don't recognize him. He's basically become Egyptian. He was probably, I don't know, 13 or 14 or something when he was sold into slavery, and he's been raised in the Egyptian way. He speaks the language. It tells us that he was communicating with them through a translator on purpose. He's dressed like uh, an officer of Pharaoh. He's in charge of Egypt. He's culturally, he's married an Egyptian woman, has two Egyptian children, Ephraim and Manasseh. There, he, is, he does not, and he's, he's older. He's now 30. So they just can't possibly recognize him, but he sees them, and he sets up a test to see what their character looks like. He wants to know if they're the same self-serving people that sold him into slavery all those years ago. And so he starts to structure a false accusation of them being spies. He keeps one of the brothers, Simeon, behind as the others go back to bring food to their father. He says, don't come back here again unless you bring Benjamin so that I know you're not lying to me, you actually have a younger brother, which of course causes Jacob great distress that his beloved younger Benjamin is, is now at risk. And he's got this whole scenario set up. So um, it's, it's an opportunity to reveal character transformation. And it asks the question, can people change? Do people change? What causes people to change? I would answer my question, yes, you can change. In fact, we're supposed to. Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Apostle Paul tells his readers, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind so you can attest and approve what God's will is. So the gospel expects us to change and be transformed. And Judah is one of the earliest ones to really demonstrate character transformation. So consider, back in chapter 37, um, verse 26, in fact, it's probably worth me reading it to you. I'm just going to turn back and read this. Now, this is right when they've got Joseph, and they threw him into a pit, and they're going to kill him. Judah says, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver." And then the Ishmaelites took Joseph to Egypt. I mean, he is our brother after all. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him for a prophet. What he doesn't think about at all is how will our father feel? How will my dad, Jacob, feel about this? He favors this kid over the rest of us, and envy and jealousy is all that's driving them. There is no love for their father. There's no concern for how it's going to make him feel. And so Judah's a scoundrel. And then he mistreats his daughter-in-law, Tamar, and that's in chapter 38. You can read about that. And, and, and then admits she's even more righteous than I am. And then Joseph's test, calling them spies, and this whole drama that plays out starts to reveal something about their guilt. In chapter 42, verse 21, they admit their guilt. They actually acknowledge this. And um, they say to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. Guys, don't sell me. No, don't. Can you imagine what that was like? And they just hardened their hearts. In fact, when you read the story, it says as soon as they did it, they sat down and ate lunch. I mean, they were just completely heartless. 
And now they've got a conscience about it. There's guilt weighing on them. And by the time we get to chapter 43, and they have to take Benjamin back to get food or they're going to starve, Judah stands up and says, I pledge my life. I'll look out for Benjamin. If anything happens to him, let his guilt be on me. Which is interesting because the guilt for the first brother is already on him. And he's saying, let, his, let Benjamin's guilt be on me if anything happens. But he's starting to be transformed. He's changing. His character is changing. And Joseph's test sets up this similar scenario. Obviously, Benjamin is favored. So um, it, it, when, when, he, when they come back down, he reunites Simeon, who he's been holding hostage to the brothers, and sets up a dinner in his house, a full meal. And when he does this, it says, um, portions were taken from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And what do they do about that? Why did he get so much? See, he's favored even in Egypt, and that jealousy could have reared its head. But it says, and they drank and were merry with him. They didn't envy him at all that he got five times as much. And so Joseph has lavished favor upon his younger brother Benjamin to test the rest of them to see, are they still envious? And they passed the jealousy test. And he sees this. They passed his test. Now, how is it that they've changed? I have to wonder of the usefulness of a guilty conscience. All these years of watching their father grieve, he never got over the loss of Joseph. That was just a, a darkness in his soul that he carried, and they saw it. And they had this lie. And, you know, the thing about the conscience is it's on God's side. God has written his law on our hearts. And when we try to ignore that, our conscience just starts blaring. You know it. When we, when we pause to do the confession in, in the service and we, we just invite the Holy Spirit, if there's some blatant sin, I don't even have to get the words out of my mouth. Let's now invite the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. He's, it's like so loud in your soul, right? I mean, it is in mine. When there's something I'm dealing with, I don't have to sit and think, wow, do I have any unconfessed sin? Like, it's right there. Our conscience is very effective, and you have to work hard. You have to work very hard to sear your conscience so that you don't feel it. And they've had years of, of God working on them through their conscience, of seeing Jacob's pain and knowing the, not knowing what happened to Joseph. Where is he? Is he dead? What? He's, he's, he's a slave. And they keep remembering him, begging for mercy, and they didn't give it. And that's wearing on them. They're seeing his pain and then their guilty conscience. These are actually useful. It's a useful thing to have a guilty conscience because we then are prompted to bring it to God, confess it, walk in the light, receive forgiveness, and experience God's goodness. So Joseph now is watching this thing play out because they're dialoguing with each other in Hebrew, and he's, he understands it, but they don't know that he does because he's been using this translator. And and so he's listening to them, admitting to one another their guilt. This is God has brought this upon us. This is our guilt for selling Joseph. This is our fault. All that's playing out. And, and Joseph is watching this. And he just finally, he just can't handle it. You know, when Judah gives his speech, and, he's, and he goes through this whole thing. If, listen, if, if I don't bring Benjamin back to our father, it will actually kill him. The grief of his other child dying will kill him. He can't handle this. And then he says, now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. I will serve you in Egypt, Mr. You know, Pharaoh's right-hand man, whatever your name is, um, and, and send Benjamin back. Otherwise, you're gonna, we're going to lose our father. He just can't handle that. 
How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. That's how chapter 44 ends. You know what the verse next says? Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood in front of him. And he cried, make everyone go out for me. Get all the Egyptians out of here. And he just loses it. And he, and he comes clean and he tells them everything that's gone, gone on. And, you know, the thing about Judah is he's expecting to become a slave. He's finally willing to sacrifice and, and let it all come out. I'm, I'm responsible. I sold Joseph. I, I'm at risk here. I'll take Benjamin's place. I deserve it. And, you know, he's given mercy instead of justice. He's, he's being fed from Joseph's own table. He's been given a ton of food. Joseph gave their money back earlier. He's been kind to them, but he's caused great anguish by setting them up and falsely accusing them. And Joseph forgives them. He experienced forgiveness. Judah experienced forgiveness, where Joseph could have totally ruined his life in vengeance. But what does that get us? And God has been working the whole time in Joseph's life. And because he knows what God is doing, or at least a part of what God is doing, he's able to forgive his brothers. And when this happens to Judah, it blows him away. On top of that, God blesses him. Do you know of the 12 tribes of Israel, which one the Messiah descends from? He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is Judah's descendant through Tamar, which involved incest. I mean, it's like this is in Jesus' genealogy. God chooses to work through the lives of scoundrels to bring about redemption. And what's interesting, when you, if you flip to, the, to chapter 49, when Jacob is pronouncing a blessing on each one of his kids, and when he comes to Judah, he says, your brothers shall praise you, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, your father's sons shall bow down before you, which, by the way, was the vision of when he was like 13 or 10 or however old he was, when he saw this vision of all the brothers and mom and dad bowing down to him, which, by the way, in the narrative happens several times when they show up in Egypt. And he says, and the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. In other words, I'm going to rule and reign through your descendants. The Messiah comes through Judah's clan, through his tribe. And once again, as we read this, we're being prepared for the gospel of the Messiah. We're getting a foretaste of self-sacrificial love. In Judah, we find now Judah, out of love for his father Jacob, and guilt about his brother Joseph, but out of love for his father Jacob, is willing to sacrifice for his brother Benjamin. And consider Jesus. Jesus, out of love for his father, is willing to self-sacrifice for his enemies. Paul writes in Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we cleaned up our act, not once we were worthy or good or holy. While we were still against him, he died for us to win our hearts, to win us over. And we learn that we can love others because God first loved us. That's in the New Testament. True love is sacrificial love. True love sacrifices. And what we find is this is actually what we were made for. You and I have pursued many self-interests in this life, all sorts of things we think that will satisfy us. And I have yet to find one that satisfies. Something for myself, just doing something for myself. And when I get it, it comes up short every time. And the strange thing is when I do something for someone else, when I sacrifice or serve someone else, extend love to someone else, it feels incredibly fulfilling. Now, I suspect that's because you and I were made in the image of God. We are image bearers of him. 
And being made in the image of God means that something of his character and nature is in us. And so God, who is an eternal trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is in a perfect self-deferential love um, community. The Father delights to glorify the Son. The Son delights to serve the Father's will. And not my will, but yours be done. And the Holy Spirit is so often overlooked because he delights to point people to the Son, because if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. And this has been going on for eternity and before time began. Out of God's love as a community sprang everything that he created, and he created us in his image. That means we were made to sacrifice ourselves in love for others. And when we do it, we actually feel fulfilled. When we insist on self, we are never satisfied. But when we die to self, we feel fulfilled. Test it. Test it out this week. See what happens. Give something up of yourself for someone else and see what happens. That's true love that sacrifices. Now, if someone in here is not a Christian, if you've never given your life to God, your conscience might be doing that thing where it's going, this is right, this is true. I am a scoundrel. I need to repent. I need to turn to God. I need what he has. So do it in prayer. Just give him your heart and say, I, I repent. I'm kind of like Judah and I want to be like the transformed Judah. It's God's work in this story that brings about that transformation of character. It's God's work on your conscience that is bring. I mean, why are you here this morning? I would submit to you that the Holy Spirit has been working in your life and got you here. You're here because God is working in your life. So give him your heart. And if you are a Christian, then I want to invite you to ask God for specifically the situation or the individual that he is calling you to sacrifice yourself in love for, to care for, to serve, and not for what you're going to get in return, just for love's sake. And you're doing it, much like Joseph's forgiveness, you're able to love, you're able to forgive because God first loved you, because God first forgave you. That's how it works. You're not earning something by doing this. It is God's love for you overflowing into love for someone else. When we do that, we're fulfilling what we were made for. Now, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to have like a half a minute of silence because I just want to give a little extra space for the Holy Spirit and just let the Lord talk to you. Let him encourage you. Let him speak to you. Listen for where he's guiding. But let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we will forever be worshiping you for your love for your goodness. God, you are love, and you have done more for us than we can possibly imagine. And I pray now that you'd come into this moment of silence, that you would apply your word to our lives, to our hearts. Give us the courage, Lord, to trust you and to lay down our lives, because you've done that for us. Come now, Holy Spirit, and minister to your people. Lord God, I thank you for your presence here in your church. I pray that you give us the strength and courage to act upon whatever you've shared with us. And I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.